Hi, and welcome to How to Ruin Dinner. This is Mary Trace, your host, and I'm here with my co-host, James Hayes. Hello, welcome. And our guest today is Dr. Mitch Haney, philosophy department guru. How about I call you that today? I, I don't know that I am a guru. <laughs> you just gave us an amazing bit of advice, never pet a burning dog. So, you know, that seems like it's something a guru would say, and then I could contemplate, when would I? It's very sage-like. Why would I? <laughs> I never intended to be a sage. <laughs> well, maybe you can tell us about your work and what your interests are, and then we'll start grilling you. Well, first of all, Mary and James, thanks for having me. Um, uh, my uh, work has kind of floated always around issues of the relationship of individuals to groups uh, and community. Um, it first kind of worked its way out in working on issues of organizational ethics and still does to some extent. Uh, Are we going to talk politics then today? And we can. The GOP in particular? We can. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you told me to put that in there, and I'm like, I'll let her handle that part. Yeah. Organizational uh, we've We definitely can. Yeah. Um, in more recent modes, I've been uh, interested in uh, individuality and social media, uh, so even wider groups, um, and published some, a number of pieces in that realm. And presently, I've been working on uh, issues of individuality in subgroups. Uh, I have a piece coming out on uh, post-punk rock individuality and community, and I have a project on uh, individuality and community in do-it-yourself communities. Oh, yeah. So, that well, that's no wonder we're talking about ethics. No wonder James brought this up. The, the, well, I thought we'd start very prosaically and kind of um, see if we can't come up with a definition of ethics so we know where we're starting. And what I always get from students is what's the difference between ethics and morals. So I thought we'd just start there and see where we go. Well, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, philosophers uh, will never settle. Um, so what I have to offer will always be contentious. Um, but uh, I think there's a sense in which in the philosophical realm there is a a kind of, uh, uh, I don't know if I'd say fully accepted, but uh, people are comfortable with something like the following. I mean, first is to get clear about what the different kinds of projects that ethicists are kind of interested in. Um, one, and this has to do, I think, with what might be called morality or many people call morality, uh, gets attached to what's often called descriptive ethics. Um, we want to know what it is that people happen to believe, feel, and how they behave in the moral realm of the treatment of others, treatment of the self, um, to get kind of a baseline of where is it that people in our communities actually think, feel, and imagine as far as good, bad, right, and wrong. Um, and that just tells you what they happen to believe. Right, And it's not just that ethicists are doing this, anthropologists are doing it, psychologists are doing it, sociologists are doing it, people in uh, religious studies are doing this. Um, and that's to get a sense of people's morality. And uh, you might think of it as, uh, uh, for me, it's looking at kind of, you can do this kind of on a surface level of just questionnaires. Um, I think about somebody, something like the book, like The Habits of the Heart, right? And a, a really nice example of people just kind of saying, you know, what is it? You, what are your values? And they t just tell you, <laughs> right? And how would you react to certain scenarios? Um, we need that because um, it gives us a sense of people's kind of intuitions of where they're at. We also find out that people often often report what they value, but their behavior is different, right? Um, and we can then ask a question, what, what the heck's going on there? Um, there's a little bit more, there's a depth level beyond that of just that surface level description that's still descriptive of saying, well, are there kind of 
common underlying values that people are reporting, um, even indirectly, um, that seem to be common across swaths of groups in a region area, groups of people, um, that seem to be somewhat undergirding their beliefs, attitudes, emotions, behaviors. Um, that gives a picture of uh, the beginnings of what somebody like Simon Blackburn calls, and we're talking about this in class, of a moral climate. Yep. Right. Um, in those cases, though, we're still just kind of describing the, the in some sense, moral uh, milieu of uh, a group. Uh, and we can ask the question whether or not there's, it's universal across the world and, or just in certain in the West, or is it different in the South, is it different in the East, right? Or the Occident, the Orient, and so on and so forth, using all sorts of you know, inappropriate terms here. Um, <laughs> the, um, but uh, that's completely different of asking whether or not those values, judgments, beliefs, behaviors, are in fact good, bad, right, or wrong. We're just reporting what people happen to believe is good, bad, right, or wrong. Uh, where ethicists in particular, not that ethicists are the only ones that engage in this, uh, start to really get engaged as the critical approach to that and say, well, are these values and attitudes, beliefs justified? That's one question I can ask is, are the things that people are reporting as being good, bad, right, and wrong, the things we really ought to believe? Are, they, are we acting ways that we ought to act, even if they're accepted? Uh, nobody uh, nobody uh, protests. <laughs> right. um, two is when people report at that deeper level where we're getting at that moral climate that, you know, I believe this because I believe in justice. We can start asking, well, what do they mean by justice? And what does, and then ask the question, what does justice really mean? You know, and how would, should we articulate the value of justice? How should we articulate the value of uh, welfare? If we believe that we're trying to maximize welfare, what do we really ought to mean? Even though somebody, people are reporting, I believe on trying to promote people's welfare they may mean one thing by it, but we could still ask, is that what we really ought to mean by it? Yeah. And, and that's something I want to call out. Something I, I learned yeah. in your class is uh, this idea that values are, you know, uh, they're not obvious in a lot of cases. They're kind of in the background. like They make up mm -hmm. the ethical or moral climate. But you can have a Democrat and you can have a Republican and they could be diametrically opposed on some issue. But it's they're both uh, being informed by a value of justice. It might not be obvious that that's what's motivating their uh, behavior or action or, or ideology, but it's there. And, and you know, uh, one of the things that uh, studying ethics does is to reveal those values and, you know, uh, uh, examine them. Right. You know? So, I mean, people on, uh, on opposing sides could be motivated, at least even report that they are motivated by the same value. And then we can actually ask, do they mean the same thing by... Right. That value, right? Uh, do they actually have different understandings of that value, or even if they have the same understandings of that value, do they value it in the same way? Right. So some might actually value justice at a certain level, but one of them actually values welfare more than justice. The right. other might value justice more than welfare. Right. right. And that might actually, from a value perspective, lead to why they have different policy uh, outcomes on things. Um, or it could be you find out that they actually believe in the same values. They just disagree about the facts. Right. Right. And then the, the solution is trying to figure out what's factually true uh, rather than having disagreements about values. Right. Um, and so ethicists in particular, especially those that work in applied ethics, part of their job is trying to sort what's the disagreements about when we have those clashes. But often I think those clashes are happening against a background where there's an awful lot of agreement. Um, 
we, well, the reason we kind of focus on the disagreements is those are the places where we, they stand out, right? right? Uh, our values kind of uh, come to the forefront and become noticeable when we disagree about things. Uh, they don't stand out when we're all just sitting, kind of going along, everything's hunky-dory, right? Right. <laughs> um, and, and we think we're actually clashing with each other a lot when in fact, if one looks at it, may, we not, may not actually be clashing all that much when you think about all the things we're doing that we all agree on. Right. Right. <laughs> right, absolutely. And that kind of goes into the politics a little bit there too. It's like there's a... You know, you, you hear the word polarization thrown all around and, and viewing it from this lens, it's like, are we really polarizing? That's kind of a fascinating question to, you know, think about, you know, if, if our values are at least similar. And like you said, we're only disagreeing on the facts. How polarizing really is that? You know? Yeah, well, there's I do think that there are interests out there because you, right. there's a number of things that people are non-moral values that people cling to, such as power, money. Etc. That you can fan right. those places where we disagree, right, to amp up our disagreements that actually serve the interests of those who want to acquire support, both financially, politically, uh, popularity, right. all sorts of things that get by amping up. Oh, uh, as. Uh, Carl Schmidt said years and years ago, the nature of politics is to identify one's enemies and seek to destroy them, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so part of what amps up politics, not that I think this is a great idea about politics, but um, I think there's a way of marketing politics uh, that is to amp up your disagreements mm -hmm. so that it's to produce followers. Right. There's, there, there's that phrase from Freud, the narcissism of dissimilarity, which seems yeah. to be getting at that same kind. The more you can show the ways in which you're different, the more your own ego is burnished. You're, you're burnishing your right. own uh, reputation, which I do think we see a lot of that kind of narcissism. Yeah. Oh, and it, it, yeah, um, you don't have to worry about just even in the political realm. I mean, no. I mean, just in general, yeah. And, yeah. and I, I do think ethics is used in that way, um, as uh, and morals can be a stick with which to sort of beat your enemy, um, that you have the sense of what is good, and you know how to implement the good. Right. Um, and and really, it becomes a way of hiding behind an idea of the good. And I and I I'm, I often think that's how abortion is used. One's position on abortion is used that you can claim this moral high ground without ever being the one who is going to suffer the consequences of that position. And I've probably said this in every podcast <laughs> I've ever written because it it's just seems to me one of the ways in which we can use a claim of morality and ethics in very unethical ways. Oh, yeah. No, I mean... Um and what, so, and what well, I would consider, at least, yeah. to be self-serving um, ways that really have yeah. nothing to do with the value you're purporting to. Yeah, I think this is actually play. going back to this original question about ethics versus morality. Right. right. Um, part of what happens when we start reflecting on our ordinary intuitions, responses, and so forth is, is there is an impetus to try to organize those to make coherent sense of them because, um, you know, we're, we're kind of prone to trying to understand things. Um, and so why is it that, you know, uh, uh, lying is wrong and stepping on somebody's toe for fun is wrong? It looks like all these disparate things are wrong. So you just get this organization of, well, why is it that we're trying to say all, all these different things all get this same apparent property, right? Um, and so there, it's not that ordinary people think about it in those terms. That's why philosophers think about it. But there is an impetus of what brings all of morality together. And one of the ways in which this happens is we start to engage in some kind of uh, systematizing. And one way in which that gets done is through what's uh, 
Blackburn, I think, nicely calls moralizing. Yep. Right. Um, and there's a whole, there's all sorts of different ways of moralizing. Uh, religions, one of them. Moral systems of religions are a form of moralizing. It, they try to get a systematic approach of here are the set of moral principles that are justified by a metaphysical system or some kind of system, right? Um, and because of that system of ideas or patterns or uh, behaviors or uh, and so on and so forth, one ought to do these things. And anybody who doesn't believe the system, doesn't believe, follow these patterns of behavior is simply wrong. Um, but the same can happen in political groups. Same can happen in families. Yep. You know, that's uh, where it happens first, maybe. And yeah, and it may be you know because f family norms don't necessarily have to be the same as the religious norms, right? Um, and so on and so forth. They can you know be disparate, but if they're imposing them in such a way and saying this is the right way, and anybody who does otherwise is in error. Right, it's that famous line. I don't care what they do. This is what we do. Is the the least most kind of uh, most hands off version of it, right? But if they start saying we do it this way, and you shouldn't socialize with anybody who does otherwise, right? Um, it becomes more uh, draconian in that way, right? Because now there's a penalty for moving outside But it's the great system. for social integrity, right? Group yeah. integrity. Yeah. I mean, it functions really well sure. um, to keep people inside the group yeah. um, and to identify one another, especially as one moves outside the family. Right. Um, it is a really powerful community and identity-building tool to yes. moralize. And the one thing that, at least in my own work, that I'd never want to deny is that we are inherently social creatures and that we do need others. Yeah. And that that's right. going to that's going to force us to make certain choices right. because we we can't just live yeah. by ourselves. Yeah, as yeah, much the, as we the life of, the life of the ascetic is typically not a pretty life. No. But thinking <laughs> to what you were talking about your work with social media and the individual, how how do you think this uh, on the one hand wider access to the world and to larger communities that are self-selected is affecting our sense of justice and equality and or do you think it's having an impact or is you know do you, I'm not sure what I'm asking exactly Mitch but I am interested in how social media and the anonymity of social media oh, in some um, sense is is it's not clear how self-selected it really is that's mm -hmm. one that's issue a, yeah because because of the way in which it's the the technology responds to what it thinks we like yes is that what yeah is that what you're yeah i mean the the algorithms treat us in ways that we ourselves as users often don't fully understand mm -hmm. um uh it treats us as desiring machines, as, a, as somebody like uh, Deleuze would say. Right? Um, kind of Hegel, that, too. That's what we're learning now. Yeah, <laughs> and it does seem to be the case it's that we're built to want more. I mean, right. enough is definitely not enough. Yeah, well, oh, it's yeah. not even if it's enough. It's not even so much that it's just uh, even the question of wanting and always wanting more. It's just even could be quite schizophrenic in the sense that I have a desire. Right. It could be quite temporary. Right, but once it's if there's any established pattern to it, the algorithm will pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And automatically start sending you, uh, uh, changing your feeds. Right. right? And um, you know the evidence is is that um, uh, the algorithms in such a way helped, you know, support. It wasn't just that people. Uh, were choosing kind of going down conspiracy holes, right? They were being fed conspiracy holes, which because they were tracking 
the fact that they are already kind of conspiracy oriented. You know? um, so uh, I have a friend of mine who I like to tease him whenever he starts making conspiratorial type thinking that, oh, you believe in the smoking man from, uh, from the X-Files, right? That would show up, right, just based upon clicks. And if enough, then more and more of the kinds of things that would promote thinking that the what appears to be true is false. There is something deeper going on. Um, I mean, uh, the example I use actually in a paper that I published a year ago is that you know there is what was called the uh, the crunchy portal into uh, QAnon. Um, an awful lot of folks who ended up down in the in QAnon were uh, folks who had been Bernie supporters. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And it's true. Bernie was actually selling a kind of conspiracy theory. It may have been a more realistic conspiracy theory, but the argument was that it's a group of elites that control politics. Right. Right. And what ended up happening was they thought they had a groundswell of popular support. He failed to be nominated. Then the evidence came out that it looked like it had been undermined by a group of elites. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Right? <laughs> and so they got a verifying evidence, you know, that verified they're already a conspiracy that they were prone to believe. And we're off to the races at that yep. point. And so they no longer believe in that party, right? And but they're already looking for conspiratorial stuff online yep. because they're already prone towards that. And all of a sudden, they're now getting conspiratorial stuff about government. And next thing you know, they're members of QAnon. Yeah. Biggest confirmation bias machine ever, you know? Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> you, you just, you know, you, you take something maybe a little innocuous and then go on the internet and you'll just zoom right to the extreme. Like well, you'll go from like a one out of 10 belief to a 10 out of 10 real quick. I mean, and the, the fact is, is the algorithm was designed to uh, sell advertising. Yep. And what drives advertising is people's, you know, trying to get people's desires to keep them in place longer. Right. Right. And that's what that algorithm is doing is what, when you click on it, it's actually measuring how long you're staying someplace. Right. It's creepy. It's a little creepy. <laughs> and then who's, who, what are our ethical responsibilities as the creators of these algorithms? And then, yeah, and also, mean, and then also as the user, is, mm -hmm. it, is it our moral responsibility? I'll switch up the word there. Um, to know what we're getting into when we start scrolling and clicking and um, to recognize our tendencies and be responsible for our ability to be manipulated. Is that is that a thing? <laughs> I well, I mean, do. one would hope that we, uh, one, have a system that uh, promotes a kind of education where one can have the kind of autonomy such that one could be uh, at least reflectively aware, such that one could engage in self-respect because I mean, it's actually a it's, it's a form though, it's actually right? a form of self-respect yeah yeah i mean occasionally it's like going to the grocery store when you're hungry you you, you yeah, know you're news. coming out of that grocery <laughs> store with stuff you would never buy otherwise right. yeah but even when and, you, when you go not hungry and when you, you go not hungry it's hard yeah. enough but even then you're being manipulated right right yes i can't i can't go too far i mean uh, yeah they actually know exactly what. to be in a call. Yes. All the most expensive stuff is right at arm level. Yeah. The stuff that they know is most prone to sell, and, and the it, stuff you and, need and is makes in the, the most money and makes the most money for the grocery stores. Grocery stores is right at arm level because they know we're lazy. We don't like to bend down, and we don't like to reach up. Right. The yeah. stuff that is way up that's more expensive, those are for the connoisseurs that know what they want. Right. And they will look for it. Right. The people that know that they want the stuff that's less expensive, we'll reach down for it. The people, those of us, the vast majority of us who are just lazy, <laughs> go right for the stuff, and that's the stuff that makes them the most money. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes. I mean, so the, but both, so product both yep. <laughs> of us have responsibilities, right? Both sides of that relationship have responsibilities. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, I guess I'm trying to put us as individuals back on the hook yeah. um, of saying, hey, you clicked on that. You know, we have to be become more aware of what we're clicking on. Yeah, I think that, you know, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that um, you know, Cornell West has a long history of having this kind of position that both individuals and communities are morally responsible. Um, that, you know, the long history of uh, support, like, for instance, he has a famous article on... Uh, uh, talking about uh, affirmative action, right? And he says what you know, the left gets wrong is that it's all about social structure. What the right get wrong is they think it's all about individual responsibility. Right. And he said what African-American communities had always gotten right is it was about having social structures that help promote individual responsibility where there is social support such that individuals can actually be in a position to take personal responsibility. And that's what originally happened in African-American communities until there were breakdowns, forced breakdowns of economic, uh, African-American economic centers, which were uh, yeah, purposely broken down. Well, now that he's running for president, I heard, Yes, that's what I hear too. We'll be, we'll be able to, <laughs> we'll see to if go he, for him. We'll see, well, we'll see if he continues to push the same uh, position. But um, the as long as he calls me sister, I'm I'm with him. Okay. <laughs> I love that. I love his yeah. his his cadence, his rhetoric. Yep. Uh, just that alone, he's got me. I mean, but at the very least, what that does is it begins to show that there's a kind of reflection that there are these deeper values, right? And it's not that the left didn't believe in individual responsibility in that case, but social welfare was kind of dominating, right? And on the right, it's not that they really don't believe in social welfare. They believe in individual responsibility and freedom, right? They do disagree about means, which are largely factual questions. Yes. What really leads to the greatest good for the greatest number in a lot of ways. Um, and they disagree about the means to that. Um, and that's largely kind of factual question, right? And all of a sudden, somebody like West and others who kind of hold that middle position are sitting, uh, if, if he still does, I don't know what his, because that article's really old now, um, uh, can say, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with this kind of middle position. And we've seen at least an instantiation of it working in society at a, uh, at, at a micro level where when you have certain kinds of social supports in place that support individuals being responsible, they work together. And, and actually don't think that probably in our, we've already seen it in other realms too, where when you have social systems that are in place, individuals can become responsible. I mean, think about, you know, self-help groups. And that's exactly how self-help groups typically work is the only way the individuals become responsible and take support for their own uh, well-being is also by having a social group that motivates them and helps them along the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I often think of the YouTube channels with all, I mean, you can learn yeah. anything on YouTube, but then you have to go do it, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. So and that's kind of that social support, but then you're the one that has to tune your guitar or, Fix your radiator. Yeah. Do they have cars have radiators anymore? Yes, yeah, do they, they do. Do they, they do. still have radiators? They still have radiators. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No carburetors. Uh, anymore. No carburetors. Well, I, I knew yeah. they did that. No so they, but you get the idea. It, it makes for a nice yeah. model of how it could work if you're not trying to differentiate yourself by running the other side down, which. Yeah, I mean, this is, 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 this is, this is why I'm fascinated the, with do it yourself communities now. Yeah. Right? is do-it-yourself communities really, when honest, it's not doing it yourself. Right. It's impossible to really do it yourself. Yeah. Right. And yet, 
with those communities, you can do a whole lot more than you could ever yeah. have figured right. out on your own. Yeah, right? you probably Which would never figure it never out. Never figure out. Or never even be brave enough to try, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is, I think, one of the most interesting parts of Googling it now or YouTubing yeah. it now. You try things you would never yeah. think um, to do by yourself. And, and, and I, I mean, oddly for us, do-it-yourself stuff seems kind of unusual yeah but that's only against the backdrop of the modern corporation right right the modern corporation and modern capitalism ended up replacing what had often been basically do-it-yourself communities for centuries right right um where you relied on people whose talents and it's not that you didn't exchange for instance currency for it and so on and so forth but if somebody had a talent or an expertise in an area, you went to them and sometimes you either paid them to do it or you just went and asked them for advice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what. Yeah. I did that recently. It feels really weird. I, I walked into a mechanic. I walked in with my uh, shop manual and I'm like, what is this? Thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, I got free advice, but I felt really weird about it. And I'm yeah. like, I feel so bad. Yeah. <laughs> that guy told me exactly how to do this and I didn't have to pay him anything. You know, yeah. it was it was weird. Yeah. What are the ethics of that, James? Huh? Well, I ended up paying that guy three hundred thirty bucks, so it came back around to him. So it was on him that he could have said. Yeah, he could have said no. You're right. right. Um, I have a question that I want to come back to. Um, So in the Blackburn book, we learned a lot about uh, uh, threats to ethical reflection, like utilitarianism, egoism, all that stuff. Hearing you talk now, it kind of makes me think, uh, oh, maybe the internet is a threat to ethical reflection, a little bit. so Any you, kind of reflection. Yeah. Could you just scroll on? Yeah. Well, so the example that kind of popped in my head when Reddit first came around, um, mm-hmm. this is dating myself a little bit, I was like super into it. I'm like, this website's so cool. I can spend hours and hours and yeah. hours on it. And then at a certain point, I ethically reflected and I'm like, wait, this is this is just a, a hive mind and everyone's just kind of thinking the same thing. And mm-hmm. if you don't think what they think, then, you know, you get downvoted to yeah. oblivion. Um, and I got disenfranchised with it. Mm-hmm. And don't ever go on it now. Yeah. Um, so I had that moment of reflection. That's because you didn't graduate to 4chan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, thankfully. God. Knock on wood. Um, so I had that moment of reflection. So A, do you, do you think uh, social media and, and, and other forms of the internet is a threat to ethical reflection or reflection in general? And um, how could we be a little bit more reflective of our habits online? Well, I think uh, uh, the... The system of social media itself, I am inclined to think, uh, has a kind of built-in threat to it. Right. Um, I do think that trying to educate ourselves and educate our youth as they're coming up about uh, social media and its usage um, is important about, you know, have discussions about exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. So like one of the things that independently of any content, um, is simply the fact that, uh, um, is the fact that you, you get instant in the same way as you do with like video games, yep. Yep. instant dopamine hit. Yep. <laughs> right. And so the, just, activates your pleasure centers and does so in an instant and that you can stay just kind of fixated and talk about uh, uh, the desiring machine without even worrying about whether or not you're being manipulated by the algorithms to get stuff, right? Right. Um, It's the new version of just vegging out in front of the couch and watching TV. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and with that though, if they are starting to carry content along with certain kind of cultural shifts, I mean, I think culturally the shift against, uh, uh, trust of expertise, mm-hmm. I think, which also is kind of carried on in some, in much of the internet, um, uh, there is this tendency then to, think, oh, what I see here and read here 
is in some sense just as authoritative as I might find, you know, in um, uh, in traditional media or in journals or from, you know, why listen to me as somebody on ethics on a podcast has expertise, don't know, experts don't know anything, not that I necessarily think I'm an expert, but... Um, but you do have training. I do have training, yeah. So um, I suppose I have this worry about expertise in ethics because it is a kind of odd field. And, yes. Um, but um, I, I know how to wield some uh, conceptual distinctions, maybe better than others. Um, the uh, And I think about it a lot. <laughs> right. The, um, Which, but but you can also defend positions. Yeah. Right, and yeah. you can defend it with your your knowledge of what other scholars have said. You can defend it with statistics. You can defend it in a lot of different ways. Yeah. That's not always the case. Yeah, right? but I also want to be humble enough to realize that one of the things I think is interesting about ethics, and sometimes we can get caught in, is that we think that because we can do that, that somehow we will. I think. Well, you're not, not infallible. Think, no, but I think but, not. But I also think that non-experts actually bring interesting perspective that we need to also remain open to. And that that kind yeah. of dialogue yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to me that what I I'm I'm going to blame science for this. Okay. <laughs> that science education has not clarified that science is not infallible either, and I'm thinking about all that we saw during COVID and the, the slow and in some ways really fast uh, move towards vaccines, for instance, but the way in which the, the, the coronavirus was spread, what we needed to do, um, people seemed to think at, at when it was discovered that maybe it is... is you don't have to be so far apart. You know, all the different things we learned was a lack of scientific understanding of how ideas are come to be understood. Right. Yeah, I, Facts come to be, um, you know. I actually don't know that I would blame like, it so much on science education. <laughs> I think, I think they like understand. Too quick to go there. Yeah, I think <laughs> my experience is that scientists themselves have always been careful. Mm-hmm. But science journalism, science literature. Well, scientific science literacy is science, what I was si thinking yeah, of. Think and so that's how I got media. to blaming education. Yeah, so science media. Yeah. Um, because when I look back, and you know, maybe it was just, you know, you look back and you say, well, I was taught the scientific method. Right. Yeah, and that scientific method. But where did, if I had a kind of science philia at times coming from, it was popular mechanics. Right. It was, uh, you know, Isaac Asimov. It was, you know, uh, you know, Star Trek. It was. There's, there was the. If you look at like the nineteen, you know, yeah, go, you go down to the, you know, land of tomorrow, at Disney, and you <laughs> get to. It's going to be a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, <laughs> where there was this kind of sense in which you idolized. Science and technology. Science utopia. Science utopia. And I don't know that scientists per se, I mean, they were working on all that engineering thinking, oh, let's try it, right? But there were others that had this kind of great hope. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, just think about the Jetsons. Yeah. I mean, ironically, Where an awful lot of what's in the jet, pack. but we don't have our jet pack, but they had, you know, video conferencing. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually seeing Escalators. somebody joking like they said, oh, they had, uh, you know, virtual doctor's appointments. They actually mm -hmm. showed a doctor actually oh, meeting no. with having a patient <laughs> yeah. in it. And it's like, you know, it's um, robot dogs, robot dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, well, with the coronavirus uh, uh, example specifically, I, I see the issue more as the interpretation of it yeah. is in, you know, like, I guess from my perspective, like, I understood, like, okay, you do a study and you come to a conclusion and then mm -hmm. you do another one and you yeah. might come to a slightly different conclusion. So I remember when uh, everyone was like, don't touch surfaces because that's yeah. 
that right. that's how you get coronavirus now. I don't I don't think we think that anymore. Um, or I saw a study where if you uh, if you're jogging and someone's 15 feet ahead of you, yeah. they they can give you their COVID and they had a heat map of it and all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, then six months later, it's like uh, maybe maybe not. But the opponents, the anti-science people, it's for lack of a better term, are like, oh, see, they're contradicting each other. But that's not really that's not that's really not the point. It's it's more it's evolving. It's, it's yeah. a non-static process. And same with the land of tomorrow. It's not that it's not cool. It's just there's this human interpretational yeah. factor going on that's mm-hmm. like sure. splitting it into this other direction that might not be, you know, um, uh, as intended with with the original science that was you know put up. So. Well, it's also this, uh, to me, it seems like this misunderstanding that has its basis, I think, in a lot of uh, religious understandings where one expects truth to be absolute. And you, to bring it back to you, uh, as an expert does not mean that you're infallible. And Mm -hmm. yet that's what we are trained from a religious perspective to expect infallibility you don't have to be <laughs> Roman Catholic yeah. to have this sense of infallibility. And we can see the way it translates to Scripture, that idea. Yeah. And then certainly the Constitution is treated by some as yeah. infallible. When we yeah. know who wrote that document and how it came together and what was happening, talk about the ethical climate. Mm-hmm. We know the yeah. ethical climate in which that document was written and yet, we have people who insist on a strict constructionist view right. of that document um, that distorts conversations and eliminates the personal responsibility um, of thinking for yourself in lots of ways. Yep. Right. Um, no, it, hey, it said it in the Constitution. That's what we got to do. <laughs> I got to have my AK, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that you know it's a hiding behind this idea of of truth and I mean, I think righteousness. There is a deep disposition in in much of human nature that finds comfort in certainty. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? And uh, you know, Dewey talks about this right uh, a lot. And yeah, having to live in that uncomfortable space of yep. maybe consider you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, I think Ugh. part of you know, I think part of our job ethically as educators is to help human beings be comfortable in the realms of probability, in the realms of uncertainty, mm-hmm. in the realms of vagueness. Mm-hmm. Um, help give them the tools. Of, Where's the power in that, Mitch? Where are you? <laughs> go- how am I going to dominate if I have to? You know, admit that I could be wrong. Well, <laughs> that, I mean, there's a problem yeah. there, right? Unfortunately, those who have actually done it well also become really good rhetoricians. Yeah. And they end up using it to manipulate people and give them certitude where there isn't. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it it, it does yeah. easily roll into a power, mm-hmm. uh, co- yeah. a corrupting power. But this is where I think the power of you know reflection also works, though is the very thing that allows someone to gain access to being able to reflect on concepts, reorganize them, that sometimes can be manipulative, is you can stand back from those very things and ask, does that really what that means? And is that really achieving the values that you claim that it's gonna achieve? Yeah. Um, And so it always has the ability that we can detach from the claims and ask, is it really true? Is it really justified? Is it really standing up for the values that it claims does? And are those the values that it really means? I mean, this is the problem with something like having certitude about the meaning of a document, right? Because you, any document, you can stand back from it and say, here's your interpretation. Is that what it really means? Right. Right. Uh, there's a kind of uh, as G. Moore says, about this is one of the issues about ethics, right? You know, you say that goodness is pleasure. You can still, it's a meaningful question to ask, is goodness really pleasure? If it were 
completely obvious that goodness is pleasure, everybody it would, would, it would be what he calls a closed question. There would be nothing more to say. Yeah. But it's not a closed question. It's a completely meaningful question. And if, for instance, district constructionists were right, then it should be a closed question as whether or not the statement, they have to give an entire meta-theory about the, the Constitution in order to justify why we should take those things literally. Right. But you can, but is that opens an open question whether we should accept that meta theory, right? If it were obvious, you know, if it were obvious, then it seems like, oh yeah, of course that's the case, right? Um, but now there's very few things I think that are closed questions, right? Some of them are mathematics, logic, stuff like that, uh, and. But well, I mean, even that, like, I've, a lot of people thought the law of non-contradiction was a closed question for, like, centuries. Yeah. <laughs> and then a couple of philosophers come along and they're like, eh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> you know? No, it's, it's hotly debated. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but this um, but is also what philosophers are really good at, is making sure that there are no sacred cows. That they stay open. These questions stay open. Yeah, well, yeah. that there are no sacred cows. And yeah. people kind of sit back and say, you know, yeah, the, we're not going to have any theses nailed the doors that everybody sits back and goes, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but society would be more harmonious. And again, right. to take it back to religions, there's religious communities who have strong uh, structured and hierarchical structures is the typical way it's been. Um, they do create a kind of harmonious society. Mm -hmm. But as long as nobody's asking... Too many questions. Mm -hmm. Well, this is actually they one of the things. Work. But I actually think this is one of the things that well, I, as in thinking about ethics and uh, individuals and communities, and overall questions like happiness, right? There are things like the paradox of choice. Mm -hmm. You know, I think on sometimes on the economic right, and even in the liberal left, more choices is always better. Not clear that's always right, right? right? Yeah. You know, you can be overwhelmed with too many choices to the point where you're paralyzed. Um, you know, we can see it sometimes in education. All right, here you have 100 classes to choose from. Isn't this great? Students can choose their own destiny. You can take any one of 100 courses for your, your gen ed category. And then you sit back and you find out, well, why did they take it? They just took whatever class fit their schedule. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Right? Or they took whatever class, you know, uh, had the best ratings on uh, uh, rate, rate my, my, my professor. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Right? They didn't choose it because of content or the fact that they thought it would fit their major or they thought they wanted to explore this because it seemed interesting to them, you know. They just said, oh, this class to fit Monday, Wednesday, yeah. Friday at 10. Yeah, it's not yep. too early, not too late. Yeah. Just yep. the Goldilocks <laughs> principle. Yeah, and whereas it turns out that if you'd limited it, you know, the number, they might have actually read the course description because it was achievable in the time span that they're looking at, thought about, wow, that course sounds more interesting than this course, or, and it fits what I'm interested in in the long run. And then you go, oh, that actually is I guess what you're hoping to get out of it. Or I have, this sounds really interesting. I know nothing about it. I'm going to take it. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and that's kind of the rub with, uh, in, at least in a political context, like with ethical reflection and, and uh, wanting to change and progress society where it's like, yeah, like I, I get it from a conservative perspective. It's like, you don't want to change anything. You want to keep the things the way they are and, and, and respect tradition feels probably feels pretty good. You know, if you have an objective like, or what seems to be an objective like, this is this is my truth. This is the way things are. You don't have to think about what maybe this or that infinite choice. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to think about that, this, that, or the other. And it's 
existentially, probably a lot. <laughs> like, I'm sure their quality of lives are a lot better than people who do have that choice and reflect on it and want to see that change and are worried about if that change will happen and what the current issues are and all that stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's an uphill battle. Yeah. You well, know? And I think when we were asking about the social media, I think that's yeah, actually part, part of what happens yep. is that uh, there's too many choices. Yep. So the algorithm plus the fact that you end up with way too many choices. Yep. Is people's desires is the is well, well I'll just follow it and naturally follow the limitation of choice, right. and all of a sudden you have this complete bubbling of people in the different communities and such that they never see the stop to seeing alternatives that might even be live interesting alternatives to what they're interested in. And we might find we're more interested in something else, which is the an odd thought too. Yeah, well, like I'm, that it could take you away from maybe what your real aptitude or interest is. It's a very odd thought because it's clearly yeah, it's like the uh, the thesis in stumbling upon happiness. Mm -hmm. Stumbling on happiness is that most of the things that make us happy are not planned. Yeah, right. We plan. We always plan to be happy, and <laughs> most of those we get them and go. Eh. Yeah. But the things that we've actually genuinely make make us happy are kind of like surprises. Yeah. And then you get in that weird space where you're like, oh, yeah, like you recognize, like, yeah, true happiness is just spontaneous and natural. And then you try to force spontaneous and natural to happen. Yeah. It's like you just get stuck in a loop. It's yeah. great. It's, it's like fun. The, <laughs> I mean, that kind of happiness is kind of like the classic uh, quote about luck. I'm trying to remember who actually said this. Epictetus? Maybe. Is that luck is just when preparation meets opportunity. Right. <laughs> or or inherited wealth. He might have to add that in there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Although he was a slave. Uh, so what did he know from the happiness that inherited wealth could bring? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's let's wrap it up there. Okay. We, yeah. We're Our at final about question. 15 minutes. Yeah. So did he tell you we generally ask, how have you ruined dinner? To just kind of wind up. I... Uh, I tend to be the gadfly in the family, so I will uh, often take up oppositional positions just to take them up. <laughs> oh, no, um, you're that guy. <laughs> I am that guy. Um, and, or, uh, yeah, so when they bring up a political or moral question, uh, I will naturally play devil's advocate for whatever the opposite position is. Yeah, do you have a... A preferred time of day to do that breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or, or all meals. Oh, it doesn't matter. Are you across the board? Meal. You're, you're, Six in the morning, you're ready to you're go. You're an egalitarian <laughs> any I'm time a, of day. I'm an equal opportunity offender. That's nice. good. Yeah, nice. It doesn't even have to be a meal. Seems, <laughs> nice. It seems to be that that's sort of the standard answer from the people we've interviewed. We must be hitting the right mar well, the market. Well, I take it that most of them are academics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mitch, thanks for, Thank thanks you. for doing this. Thank you so great. much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was.